Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week brings me to our final entry of the 1980s, thank God, 1989's metatextual thrill ride, The Dark Half. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, uh, this is a novel that I have been waiting to get back to. Um... And I don't know. I mean, it's not like I've never reread it. I mean, I, I've I've reread it again since the first time at least once. I want to say so. It's not like I don't have distinct memories of it. You know, maybe it's because I've just been so immersed in the world of Richard Bachman as of late. So I guess the meta aspect of the story to me probably is that much fresher. Now, the first few times around with the Dark Half didn't have that level of understanding of King's alter ego. Yeah, I mean, I had read the Bachman books, but it's only until my reread for the podcast that I realized the sheer brutality of the quality of Richard Bachman's books as opposed to what Stephen King publishes under his own name. So I guess having a better understanding of Richard Bachman means that I have a better understanding of the conflict within the Dark Half, namely George Stark's sense of being. Now, just a couple things about the Dark Half before I really get into it. The first is that there are a few novels that King has to put out that tend to um, not get disregarded. That's not the right word for it, but aren't lauded. That's it. That, that aren't lauded the same way as, let's say, uh, The Shining. Now, The Dark Half certainly falls into this category. You know, having not really been, no, sorry, not really, but having not been, period, and a Stephen King reader at 1989, I, I can't tell you why that is. I mean, maybe the audience is still suffering from a post-it hangover, or maybe it's coming off the heels of the much-derided The Tommyknockers, which might have soured the reader's experience with the dark half. Maybe it's the lukewarm reception to the mediocre film adaptation. You know, maybe it's because the premise is a little too inside baseball for the average reader. You know, maybe it's none of these things. Maybe it's all of these things. Uh, but one thing's certain. The Dark Half is not spoken of with the same hushed tones as others in his collection. You know, granted, with all of that said, it was still the second highest selling book of 1989. But still, people don't talk about it the same way they talk about his other hits. If the basis of the novel itself with it having very real-world roots in our world, like I said, could be a little bit too baseball for the general audience for it to catch on as one of his classics with a capital C. You know, this, despite the fact that it might hold it back, this is the exact reason why I love it as much as I do. With the dark half, King is in a very distinct position to write about an experience that none of us really have any familiarity with. But I look forward to watching his exploration of it all the more because it's such a rare experience. You know, and the, the experience I'm talking about is that alter ego. And a famous author having to bury his alter ego is just a very, very interesting idea that I like to see explored. It's what makes this book special in comparison to um, uh, Mr. Murder, Mr. Murder by Dean Koontz. Um, which is a very similar premise, but without that metatextual aspect, it just makes the dark half that much more 
um, distinct. It pops that much more. It's that much more sweeter. And Mr. Murder, by comparison, is just just another thriller. It, it doesn't really have that same gravitas, that same energy to it, because it's not being drawn from a, uh, a very real-world experience that the author was going through. Now, as you know, um, and I've said it in almost each of the Bachman-related podcasts that I've done, um, I was not 100% on board with reading the Bachman books. You know, I just have to throw it out there again, I guess. Um, just so you know, in my reread, um, maybe maybe this puts it in a little bit of context because for all of the Bachman fans out there, I, I feel so badly because I was not enthusiastic really about any of them. Um, and maybe it just had to do in the chronological order of when I read them. In my reread of the books, I jumped ahead to the published edition um I'm sorry, I, I jumped ahead um, of the Bachman books, that, that collected edition. So I, I skipped that, and I went to it, uh, and then doubled back to read the, the collected novels. You know, I, maybe it was because I just went from the masterpiece um, of King's abilities to going backwards to earlier and, and rougher works that are found within the Bachman books. Um, or maybe it's just because they're not that good. I don't know what it is, but I just I had a very difficult time trying to say anything about the Bachman books. Other than that, they're they're harsh, they're they're brutal, um, and, and completely devoid of of any joy or fun. Now, with that said, I was still fascinated at reading this other side of Stephen King, who wasn't interested in exploring the the better aspects of humanity. You know, the the one who wanted to publish hard-boiled dime store fiction without much fanfare or publicity. Uh, the, the creation of Richard Bachman resulted with the, the, the fictitious author uh, made of cracked city streets and a soul of broken glass, right? By the point of the Dark House publication, Richard Bachman had been pulled out of the shadows and his mask ripped off to reveal a mischievous Stephen King beneath. In another world, that could have been the end, but we're lucky here that it wasn't. While King doesn't specifically resurrect Richard Bachman, uh, meaning this novel isn't published under that other name, King resurrects the spirit of Richard Bachman in order to give him the, the send-off he deserves. It's one of King's more high-concept what-if stories. What if an author's alter ego came back from the grave to take possession of the author's body? It's specific to not only authors, but only to the authors who have had pseudonyms and really, it's specific to only Stephen King. And that's fine. I'm fine with that. It makes an incredible personal novel, one that brandishes the Stephen Kingism of having an author as a protagonist with pride. And you'll know that I've had issues with this before in the past, but Thad Beaumont has to be an author. And that's a difference there. He has to be an author in the same way that Paul Sheldon had to be an author in Misery. Neither book would have worked without it. Here, we get the experience of the writer with, without that, that, um, that introspective indulgence of uh, the, the, the Jim Gardners and the Bobby Andersons um, of, of the past, as we saw with, with the Tommyknockers. So, I was very, very excited about diving into the dark half. Um, I have a lot to say about the dark half, but before I get any further, you know where I'm going with this. I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary, so I'll have a, a basis for my analysis from Wikipedia. Thad Beaumont is an author and recovering alcoholic who lives in the town of Ludlow, Maine. Thad's own books, Cerebral Literary Fiction, are not very successful. 
However, under the pen name George Stark, he writes very highly successful crime novels about a violent killer named Alexis Machine. When Thad's authorship of Stark's novels become public knowledge, Thad and his wife Elizabeth decide to stage a mock burial for his alter ego at the local cemetery, which is featured in a People magazine article. Stark's epitaph says it all. Not a very nice guy. Stark, however, emerges from the mock grave as a physical entity and goes on a killing spree, gruesomely murdering everyone he perceives as responsible for his death. Thad's editor, agent, and the people interviewer, among others. Thad, meanwhile, is plagued by surreal nightmares. Stark's murders are investigated by Alan Pangborn, the sheriff of the neighboring town of Castle Rock, who finds Thad's voice and fingerprints at the crime scenes. This evidence, and Thad's unwillingness to answer his questions, causes Pangborn to believe that Thad, despite having alibis, is responsible for the murders. Later, it's discovered that George Stark has the same fingerprints as Thad Beaumont as a clue to the town um, twinship he and Thad share. Thad eventually discovers that he and Stark share a mental bond and begins to find notes from Stark written in his own handwriting. The notes tell Thad what activity Stark has been engaging in. Observing his son and daughter, Thad notes that twins share a unique bond. They can feel each other's pain and at times appear to read the other's mind. Using this as a key to his own situation, he begins to discover the even deeper meaning behind himself and Stark. Pangborn eventually learns that Thad had a twin. The unborn brother was absorbed into Thad in utero and later removed from his brain when the author was a child. He had suffered from severe headaches and was originally thought to be a tumor causing them. The neurosurgeon who removed it found the following inside, part of a nostril, some fingernails, some teeth, and a malformed human eye. This leads to questions about the true nature of Stark, whether he is the malevolent spirit with its own existence, <coughs> excuse me, or Thad himself manifesting an alternate personality. Thad eventually vanquishes Stark, but the book ends on an unhappy note with Thad's wife having serious doubts about the future of their relationship. She is appalled that Thad had not only created Stark unintentionally, but that part of him liked Stark. Analysis. As we begin, let's look at the author's note in which King writes, I'm indebted to the late Richard Bachman for his help and inspiration. This novel could not have been written without him. Already, right here, King is setting the stage for this novel. Notice that he refers to Bachman as another person rather than an aspect of himself. He's creating the thrust of this novel on multiple levels within the pages of this book and without. And something that Stephen King has kept up throughout the years. You know, I mean, in interviews and, and whatever, you know, he'll talk about Richard Bachman, uh, you know, just being a pseudonym. But when he publishes his books, Richard Bachman is always a separate entity. When The Regulators is published, Stephen King publishes it under Richard Bachman's name. And the description of the book states that it was found among... Um, uh, Richard Bachman's Belongings, an unpublished manuscript, and Stephen King, you know, helped get it published. So he, he keeps up that appearance. Um, it's a fun little, um, I don't know, not, not experimental theater, but it's just, it's a fun bit of um, celebrity, celebrity alter ego going on. Anyway, we, we then cut to the prologue, which includes an excerpt from one of George Stark's novels, Mach uh, Machine's Way, which reads, Cut him, Machine said. Cut him while I stand here and watch. I want to see the blood flow. Don't make me tell you twice. 
While it says that the excerpt is taken from one of Stark's books, seriously, guys, it reads like something out of a Bachman book. It's dark, it's mean, and it's angry. And then we get to uh, our opening of the novel, which presents a duality within its opening paragraph that mirrors the duality found within the very conflict of the novel. King references people's lives, then breaks it down to people's real lives versus the simple existences. And keep in mind that the duality is presented at odds with one another, as George and Thad will be throughout the rest of this novel. Furthermore, he goes on to say that two things happened to him in 1960, one that shaped his life and one that nearly ended it. This is a novel about two souls fighting over a body, and that's presented even within the structure of the first paragraph. King then goes on to write that Thad, as a boy, submitted a short story to a magazine. Whether it's intentional or not isn't clear. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but we see aspects of doubling continue. For one, it's submitted in January, and he hears back in June. One story connected by two different months. He would have won the second prize award. Not first, but second prize. And he is told he's two years away from being eligible for awards. Two weeks later, he receives a certificate of merit in the mail. There are two disparate reactions from his parents, one of pride from his mother and one of dismissal from his father. And that's a lot of doubles and pairings. And then he continues. We see that uh, Thad is celebratory and happy from the win, and he has a belief in himself as a writer. Um, and then we then see him in agony as a result of the debilitating headaches. The paragraph before, he was thinking about life as a writer, and in the next paragraph, he's wishing for death to escape the headaches. King introduces the supernatural element right away, the phantom sound of the uh, distant cheeping of a thousand small birds that precedes the headaches. We soon learn that Thad has a tumor. <laughs> and by the way, um, whenever I hear that word, I think of the running man himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger from Kindergarten Cop. Uh, during the operation, King teases that they uh, see something that causes one nurse to scream and the assisting doctor to have a more restrained but similarly horrified reaction. And it makes for such a great visual and eyeball in Thad's brain. You know, the surgeon explains that Thad has absorbed his twin in utero, a real-life occurrence that sounds like it can't possibly occur outside of a science fiction or a horror story. But because it's a real-life phenomenon, it makes the fiction that's built around it that much richer. Book one, Fool's Stuffing. After another excerpt from a Stark novel, we're introduced to adult Thad and his wife Liz. When Thad um, rubs the scar on his forehead, King makes the connection between the surgery from his youth and the obituary of George Stark in the magazine, a surgery as an adult. We learn of the pseudonym, uh, the story, the funeral. When people uh, with the people interview, King lays out the relationship between the two authors, uh, the way in which both of them wrote, Thad with his typewriter, George with his pencils. An interesting thing that King does is invert the um, prolificacy of the relationship between the author and the pseudonym. In our reality, King was the dominant force, while here, Stark, the, the, the Bachman analog, was a dominant force. We learn that the outing of George Stark is a result of a man named Frederick Clausen, who had uh, discovered Thad's alter ego. In the dark half, this character is not portrayed in a positive light. It made me wonder how Steve Brown, the real-life cause of Richard Bachman's death, 
felt about the characterization. In real life, King seemed rather gracious about the whole thing, um, and there was never any blackmail whatsoever, but here I wonder if King channels some uh, harboring resentment. Chapter 2. Breaking up housekeeping. Thad has a prophetic nightmare involving his ghostly alter ego in which the thematic plot points are brought to the service uh, and the ownership of the life of Thad Beaumont is put up front for discussion. Who's the real person here? Is it Thad or is it George? Uh, the, the scene itself is less of a scene and more of the act of loading the gun so he can fire it later. You know, one bullet is the characterization of George Stark with his catchphrase of Old Hoss, the bloodied history of the pearl-handled straight razor, the bumper sticker on the back of Stark's car. Another bullet is to provide the physical destination where the climax will take place, their summer home in Castle Rock, codenamed here Ennsville. Third bullet is a sense of sibling rivalry, or at least uh, a very, very deep familiarity between the two characters. And that's just the dream sequence. We're less than 40 pages in, and I don't even talk about everything that King has laid down within the first chapter that would come back to function as main beats in the story later. Like um, the Wendy and William wave, which is charming and cute here, only to show the corruption later on when they wave at George Stark as if he's their father. And there's all the players that are established up front. We got Phyllis Myers, the photographer, Rick Crowley, Thad's agent, um, Jerry at Associated Press, and Louise um, at Publishers Weekly, Frederick Clausen, Mike Donaldson, who wrote the People Magazine article. Now, each character is presented up front, um, you know, not really uh, to function in the story as characters, but as sheeps for the ultimate slaughter. Chapter 3. Graveyard Blues. We meet Digger Holt, who King provides with little context, giving us a sense of uh, this already wonderfully established small town, which um, is Castle Rock, for those of you uh, who, who didn't know. And as you know, Castle Rock, and I'll get to it later on um, in the Easter eggs, but uh, Castle Rock is, is the premier Stephen King small town. Um, and he's, he's written a number of books, like I said, um, that, that have taken place in, small, in, in Castle Rock. And um, this novel functions kind of as a... Um, he's building the foundation um, for what he ultimately labeled, labeled the, the, the final Castle Rock story. So he's, he's within this novel, he's creating some characters and putting them into place so that they're already there and established by the time he gets to needful things. Um, so he, he gives us uh, a sense of, of Digger's responsibilities and the scale of the town without going overboard, as he is known to do. Digger discovers the unearthed grave of George Stark. With Digger's perspective, we get a good sense of who he is as a character, and it's his memory that takes us back to the day of the photo shoot. The character work is on point here. From Digger's um, perceptive yet down-home mind to the uppity nature of the photographer to the fact that he spots a broken flower pot, which shows um, rather than, than, than telling us that, that Stark had made the decision to, to smash it. Um, and whether or not it's a tribute to Dennis Westlake's uh, Charles Stark pseudonym, after which King had almost used himself rather than Bachman, or if because the spirit of 
serial killer Charles Starkweather, who had also inspired the creation of Rental Flag, had taken cold, uh, hold of King, or if King channels his meanest tendencies, whatever it is, Stark just dude just jumps off the page. You know, it's just over 50 pages, and he hasn't really made his real-world debut yet. Um, you know, just in the shadows of nightmares and talked about in hushed tones, but still, as characters go, he's the most fleshed-out one in this book. You know, with lines like the following, you get the sense that King had a lot of fun with him. Although Digger was not much better at imagining things than he was at fooling himself, the two things, after all, have a way of going hand-in-hand, Digger saw this man for a moment, literally saw him, a big fellow with big feet, striding through this silent suburb of the dead in the darkness, moving confidently and steadily on his big feet, booting the basket of flowers out of his way without even breaking stride when he came to it. He was not afraid either, not this man, because if there were things here which were still lively, as some people believed, they would be afraid of him. Moving, walking, striding, God befriend the man or woman who got in his way. Chapter 4. Death in a Small Town King must have had a grin on his face when he wrote the opening to this chapter. Castle Rock has been, at least in recent years, an unlucky town. Um, the following paragraph takes the reader through the events of the Dead Zone and Cujo, focusing on the late Sheriff Bannerman in order to set up a character who I believe, and I will speak to in much greater length later, King's greatest small-town hero, Sheriff Alan Pangborn, the, the star of Needful Things, uh, one of King's upcoming novels. By the way, here, the reference to his wife is heartbreaking uh, because we all know, spoiler alert, that she doesn't make it very long and her death is a major plot point in the story of Castle Rock. Despite the grim danger of George Stark, King clearly has fun with his Castle Rock characters. You know, it's no surprise that he quickly revisited them for the Devil Comes to Town story, Needful Things. For instance, there's this great scene on page 58 when Gentle Deputy Norris Ridgwick tries getting a statement from the chatterbox Mrs. Arsenault. You know, it's not a necessary scene, and it's definitely one that could have been cut, but its inclusion demonstrates the patience and the doormat nature of Norris and, you know, the small-town talkative type of Mrs. Arsenault. You know, the fact that the story revolves around a ghost that just chewed its way out of the earth adds a little extra humorous spice to the meal. Also, I want to point out that in the 60 pages of this novel, we have met Thad, Liz, Wendy, William Beaumont, Digger Holt, Alan Pangborn, Norris um, Ridgewick, um, even minuscule characters like Mrs. Arsenault, along with the opening flashback, which introduced Thad's parents, the surgeon, a couple of notable nurses, an observing doctor... You know, and with the People magazine inclusion, we have memories of Mike Donaldson, the writer, and Phyllis Myers, the photographer, and, 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 and others. So basically what I'm trying to say here is in 60 pages, we've been introduced to nearly a dozen characters, two different time periods, two different present day settings, a nightmare, the point of view um, of a number of characters, a murder, and subsequent mysteries. King is jam packing everything he possibly can into this book. Now, the reason I bring this up is because in 60 pages of the Tommyknockers, we were just getting to meet our second character, James Gardner, after having spent 50 pages with Bobby Anderson in one static location. You know, I mean, there's even humor when they find Homer Gamache's body, with Alan asking Norris to call him by his first name, and Norris replying, Sure, Sheriff. 
You know, the humor darkens when Pangborn realizes that Homer died at the hands of a man who'd beaten him to death with his own prosthetic limb. Chapter 5. Here we're treated to another brief POV character, Trooper Hamilton, who finds Homer's pickup truck. Again, King doesn't have to spend as much time with the character like this, but I find that it's worth it when he starts thinking about how Batman's utility belt had inspired him to become a cop in the first place. His discovery of the blood-drenched car paints a vivid picture of George Stark, who cruised from Maine to Connecticut in a gore-spattered truck, daring enough to pull through the drive throughs of fast food joints along the way. Chapter 6, Death in the Big City. Again, we get another character's point of view, Dodie, through whom we learn about how Frederick Mr. Big Shot Kloss and a character you know, who just seems to collect nicknames, by the way, first Creepazoid and here Mr. Big Shot, had attempted to blackmail Thad upon discovering the truth about George Stark's pseudonym. It's through Dodie's perspective do we see the remains of Mr. Big Shot, the Creepazoid, who is very much now dead after what looks to be a sadistic torturing session at the hands of Stark, who between Harold and now Clausen has a vicious mean streak that embodies the hard-boiled, pessimistic writing style of Richard Bachman. With the remains of Clausen, we also get our novel's catchphrase, the ominous and nonsensical, but all the same still creepy, the sparrows are flying again. The kicker of the scene comes when Dodie realizes that the killer had been in the apartment with her the entire time, who slipped out the door when she discovered the body, the body of Clausen. Chapter 7. Police Business by this point in the novel, it's clear that King is having a blast switching the point of view of the different characters, and even changing the perspectives entirely, as in the case when the narrative shifts to Thad's journal, and we are treated to the scene through first-person perspective in order to capture the first meeting between he and Alan Pangborn, who realizes that Thad is guilty. Of what, Thad does not know, but the effect of the horror and this realization is captured by King and by Thad with this journal entry before switching back to third person. The scene in which Alan comes to arrest Thad is electric, but you have to take a close look to understand why. First, it's not as if Pangborn comes alone. If that was the case, the scene would be limited to three people, Thad, Liz, and Pangborn. Pangborn would be outnumbered, and the number of character in interactions and reactions to those, those interactions would be limited. Instead, Pangborn comes flanked with two state troopers whose presence alone is enough to unnerve the Beaumonts, even before Pangborn has to speak. The two troopers, having no personal connection to Homer Gamache, aren't possessed with the same fury as Pangborn, so they can be questioning, reactive, and professional. This allows Thad and Pangborn to have their showdown while the other characters react around them. Alan Pangborn could have very easily have been painted as an obstacle or aggressor to Thad. But King never portrays him that way. Even when accusing him of murder, he comes across as a man of dignity, of belief, and strength. Even though he's accusing our main character of murder, you can't help but like the guy. And he has all the qualities that you would want to have out of the, the head of your local police. I mean, when it comes down to it, he's a real-world gunslinger. And I don't mean gunfighter. I mean gunslinger. As in a Stephen King gunslinger. A man of conviction, duty, and strong moral compass. Chapter 8. Pangborn pays a visit. We see the return of Thad's headaches, the sparrows, and see that he has scrawled, the sparrows are flying again, in pencil on the page. 
And here we get the sense of a beginning of the partnership between Alan Pangborn and Thad Beaumont, a kind of inverse um, relationship to the George Bannerman Johnny Smith partnership in which the lawman had reached out to a resisting supernatural character, whereas here, Pangborn is the resisting force against the supernatural elements found within the book. And then after another cheesy joke, a Stephen Kingism, that results with Pangborn laughing so hard he chokes on his beer, the three characters, Liz and Thad and Pangborn, become friends. Chapter 9, The Invasion of the Creepazoids. Liz recounts the tale of Clausen's attempted blackmail. Though we know the end result um, of not just the scheme and the blackmailer's life, um, King makes the story told through Liz's perspective as thrilling as possible. The scene also teases a plot development regarding Alan's wife, Annie, who says that, uh, who he says has been feeling under the weather lately with migraines. Now, I can't quite remember how it was acknowledged in Needful Things. Um, but I think in Needful Things that she was suffering, that had been referenced that she was suffering from cancer. Um, and I believe the subsequent car crash was brought on by a cancer-related incident, I believe. Um, and again, I'm sorry for spoiling a plot point in um, Needful Things. It's not a... It doesn't come as a mystery. I mean, it's not a shock. I mean, she's dead by the opening pages, um, and it's part of uh, Pangborn's characterization going forward through the novel. Then, later that night, King doesn't create unnecessary tension, say, by having Thad withhold the fact that he'd written The Sparrows Are Flying Again from Liz. Despite whatever supernatural occurrences are happening within this story, these two characters will stand together. Chapter 11, Endsville. It's here when sparrows make their appearance in the real world, outside of an ominous phrase and, and the dreams. In a trance, Thad realizes that he is ghost-written all over a piece of paper, and I don't recall specifically, but did Nadine Cross from the stand do the same thing when communicating with Randall Flagg? Um, I'm currently rereading uh, the stand right now, so I'll get to that answer soon enough. Chapter 12, Sis. Here we go. Here we go, guys. This is the first time we see George Stark in the present. Not in a dream, not talked about by others who've seen glances. We see him in full as he brutally terrifies and murders Miriam. And here we see how devilishly maniacal and dangerous he is. Chapter 13, Sheer Panic. As the title suggests, the chapter plays out the following... Um, the immediate aftermath of the phone call and King captures a very real sense of terror and panic. Liz and Thad are not heroes by any means. They're simply ordinary folks like you and I who are desperately trying to maintain sanity in a growing, insane world. And on page 171 to 172, King provides a very, very detailed um, description of George Stark. He's fairly tall, he began. Taller than me, anyway, Thad saying this to, to Alan Pangborn. 6'3", maybe 6'4", and a pair of boots. He's got blonde hair, cut short and neat, blue eyes. His long vision is excellent. About five years ago, he took to wearing glasses for close work, reading and writing mostly. The reason he gets noticed isn't his height, but his breadth. He's not fat. 
but he's extremely wide. Next size, maybe 18 and a half, maybe 19. He's my age, Alan, but he's not fading the way I'm starting to or running to, to fat. He's strong. Like Schwarzenegger looks now that Schwarzenegger has started to build down a little. He works out with weights. He can pump a bicep hard enough to pop a sleeve seam on his shirt, but he's got he's not muscle-bound. He was born in New Hampshire, but following the divorce of his parents, he moved with his mother to Oxford, Mississippi, where she was raised. He's lived most of his life there. When he was younger, he had an accent so thick he sounded like he came from Dogpatch. A lot of people made fun of that accent in college, not to his face, though you don't make fun of a guy like this to his face, and he worked hard on getting rid of it. Now, I think the only time you would be apt to hear Cracker in his voice would be when he gets mad, and I think people who make him mad are often not available for testimony later on. He's got a short fuse. He's violent. He's dangerous. He is, in fact, a practicing psychopath. He's quite deeply tanned and blonde, and since blonde men unusually don't tan all that well, it might be a good point of identification. Big feet. Big hands, big neck, wide shoulders. His face looked like someone, somebody talented, but in a hurry, chopped it out of hard rock. Final thing. He may be driving a black Toronado. I don't know what year. One of the old ones that had a lot of blasting powder under the hood anyway. Black. It could have Mississippi plates, but he's probably switched them. He paused, then added, Oh, there's a sticker on the back bumper. It says, high tone, son of a bitch. Chapter 14, Fool's Stuffing. Yikes. Uh, we get a very public, very messy murder here, which shows Stark's boldness and danger. It's during times like this when I can't help but think of gentle, clumsy, emotionally fragile Thad. I worry for Liz, who may function as collateral damage. I think of the twins, and I get really worried. The thing about Stark is that he isn't just forceful. He's very agile. Not just dangerous, but deadly which I believe connotes intelligence. He's quick-witted, as evident by the blind man trick he uses to get close enough to the police to take them out. Book 2, Stark Takes Charge. Chapter 15, Stark Disbelief. On page 197, King's characters stop bothering to justify the inexplicable and decide to just acknowledge what's occurring. Supernatural events are at work. Liz is the one that dives all in by telling Pangborn that the pseudonym has come to life. Again, uh, Pangborn's wife's death is foreshadowed when Liz says that because he's lost weight since he's gotten married, he'd lose the ring if he didn't get it resized. It's at this point that if I was a first-time reader, I'd grow very concerned for the well-being of Pangborn. So far, King has given us some of the most vivid and brutal deaths at the hand of a sociopath who operates within Richard Bachman logic. So in this case, when a character out of a Stephen King novel comes into a contact with the villain of a Bachman book, who will win out? It's a great question, and this is why I love this book. And the odds here do not look to be in the favor of Alan Pangborn. Chapter 16, George Stark Calling. Here it comes the first confrontation between the hero and villain. When King writes that Stark calls, it's almost matter-of-factly. The rest of the scene plays out tensely, the phone ringing, Thad and Liz certain it's him, so much threat loaded in that ringing telephone. And then Thad answers, and the two halves are able to talk. Stark manipulates the scene, knowing he's being recorded, 
stating that he isn't Stark, that he's just a loony who thought that he was. Caught in the middle is Alan, who's siding with Thad and Liz, even though he won't admit the absolute truth to himself. Now, when Stark and Thad have their actual conversation, Thad is able to stand up to him and push his buttons. It's a demonstration of strength that wasn't necessarily there before, um, hidden by descriptions of suicide attempts and awkwardness. Every time they talk makes for great interaction. What, what's really cool about it is that there's this immediate familiarity. Um, both characters on a first-name basis. I mean, there's an undeniable spark when the two talk to each other and later on when they're, when they're interacting with one another. And here we get George's motivation. It's made very, very clear. He needs Thad. He needs him to start writing a Stark story. We don't know why yet, but the conflict is certainly palpable. We've, brought, we've bought into Thad's feeling towards the Stark persona, and we start to get a sense of exactly where this is headed, and it does not look good. Chapter 17, Wendy Takes a Fall. Here we get the basis for the reasoning why Stark wants Thad to start to write the new story. The process will will him into existence. It's such a surreal concept. It's one that I love. We get another sense of doubling with Wendy and William who share bruises when each other get hurt. Chapter 18, Automatic Writing. Thad experiments with ghostwriting. Um, and it concludes with a written conversation where we learn that Stark is falling apart. And, you know, it ends with the, the very memorable scene of just of, uh, of Stark taking control of Thad's hand and stabbing Thad with the pencil. Chapter 19, Stark Makes a Purchase. Uh, this chapter is our first chapter with Stark as the POV. Here we get a better sense of the relationship between he and Thad as well as the introduction to his deteriorating state of being. King comments on Stark's ethereal quality. I mean, I, I know that he is functioning in the real world, but up until now, he's really been like the shark in Jaws, right? You know, we only see him during an attack or when the story needs tension. So here we get chapter... Um, you know, 19, like I said, um, and as Stephen King fans know, um, the number 19 is a, a loaded number. So it's, it's really interesting that the first time we really get to see everything through Stark's point of view is in, in chapter 19. Waking up, King writes, wasn't like waking up. When you come right down to it, he didn't think he had ever really been awake or asleep, or at least in the way normal people use those words. In a way, it was as if he were always asleep, and only moved from one dream to another. In that way, his life, what little of it he remembered, was like a nest of Chinese boxes that never ended, or like peering into an endless hall of mirrors. You know, so there we just, like I said, get the sense of that that he's this this ethereal thing that pops up when he has to pop up and we don't really care where he goes between attacks just so long he's when he's there during the attacks that those scenes pop you know in so many ways his appearances are dreamlike you know he appears in one place and then he appears in the next you know though it's only a flourish here of the writer's hand it it, it gives this character a, a sublime quality stark also shows vulnerability here Physical, emotional, describing his connection with Thad as comforting, like lying in the dark with your brother after lights out. 
which is such, uh, I mean, for a character that is just ruthless and monstrous, the fact that it comes from, this description comes from, Tha um, sorry, George, it's, it just adds more nuance to this character. It, it, it softens those edges. Um, and, you know, when I say soften, I mean, even after they're softened, they're still razor sharp. King reveals that Stark is incapable of writing anything but his own name. You know, it's a great reminder that all he is is George Stark. Aside from that, there's nothing else. And it raises the question, what gives someone the ability to write, to create something? A soul? You know, if so, then clearly Stark does not have one and will need Thads to continue. And here we see that Stark is rotting alive. And it's heavily suggested that once Thad begins the writing process, um, the rotting will reverse itself and possibly transfer over to Thad. Chapter 20, Over the Deadline. The, no the most notable thing in this chapter is the explanation for the sparrows, otherwise known as psychopomps, harbingers of the living dead who gather to return a deceased soul back to the underworld. That and the fact that Stark has gotten Liz and the twins. Thad now has no choice but to help him. What are you doing? Stop it. Stop it. In that moment, we find out that Stark prefers to call Liz by the other nickname for Elizabeth, Beth. And just as Thad had a deep familiarity with Stark right off the bat, so does Liz, whose conversation with him feels like they've known each other for years. And the kicker of this scene comes when Stark forces Liz to surrender one of the twins to him, and she discovers that Wendy responds to George as if he's her father. It's such a great disturbing moment. Book 3, The Coming of the Psychopomps, Chapter 22, Thad on the Run. The chapter opens with a truth bomb. A part of Thad can't help but like Stark. Hadn't there always been a part of him in love with George Stark's simple, violent nature? Hadn't part of him always admired George, a man who didn't stumble over things or bump into things, a man who never looked weak or silly, a man who would never have to fear the demons locked away in the liquor cabinet, a man with no wife or children to consider, with no loves to bind him or slow him down, a man who had never waded through a student essay or agonized over a budget committee meeting, a man who had sharp, straight answers to all of life's more difficult questions, a man who was not afraid of the dark because he owned the dark. A part of you finds that so attractive, doesn't it? Thad here also learns that he has some measure of control over the psychopomps. Chapter 23, two calls for Sheriff Pangborn. Pangborn is finally able to speak to Dr. Hugh Pritchard, who opened the events of the novel, and Pangborn begins to get the sensation that the final events have begun to occur. And when Pritchard fills him in on the surgery, Pangborn thinks he has two men. He has always been two men. That's what any man or woman who makes believe for a living must be. The one who exists in the normal world and the one who creates worlds. They are two. Always at least two. So, I mean, clearly that's Alan Payneborn thinking about things, but that's such a commentary that, that King is addressing on the existence of writers and creative types. Um... And really just discussing the, the, the worlds that exist within some people's heads. Like Stephen King. 
And we learn that in the hours following the surgery, the hospital was attacked by sparrows. He then receives a call about the state trooper murders at the Beaumont house and finally decides to believe that all that has been occurring cannot be explained by rational thought. And like the hero he is, he decides to head to the lake house alone in order to spare the lives of any more police officers. Chapter 24, The Coming of the Sparrows. And boy, do the sparrows come. They carpet every inch of the area so that when Alan arrives, he hears a branch break. It's a great little moment that beefs up the supernatural quality. If Sparrow's bones are hollow, how many birds would it take to break a branch? Despite Pangborn's agility, Stark is still able to get the drop on him, and it presents an issue with the novel. To Stark, Alan's just another cop. We've seen him ruthlessly slaughter everyone that's gotten in his way. There's no reason for Stark to keep him alive. And the only reason that Pangborn is kept alive is because of the author's affection for the character. The problem is that during the writing, it looks like as if Pangborn grew too likable um, and unable to be killed. I mean, did King know at the time he created a loaded gun that would go off in another book? Regardless, the depiction of Pangborn is so clear. The problem is, when he got to the lake house, I realized that the showdown I really wanted to see was between he and Stark, not so much Stark and Thad. And thankfully, despite the fact that it doesn't make sense for Stark to do so, that he kept Alan alive. Regardless, during this scene, Alan realizes something that we've noticed all along. All of us, but not Stark. And that of all of our characters, Liz is potentially the most dangerous. When compared to Liz, Thad comes across as incredibly weak. She has a miscarriage, so he tries to commit suicide? Do her thoughts turn dark and inward? Does she disappear? No. She pulls herself together and focuses on the positive, giving birth to two wonderful children. And here, at the end, you know, she's been forced to watch Stark play with her children and threaten to take the life essence of her husband. And most disrespectfully, she isn't even treated like a player in the game. Just like I said about Alan, I'd rather see Liz have the final showdown against Stark than Thad. Chapter 25, Steel Machine. As Thad arrives, he's greeted by the Sparrows, who move out of the way to clear a path for his car. As he states, he's now in the land of the living dead. And it's such, I mean, just close your eyes and picture that for a second. He's arriving to this beautiful um, lake house and everything, all of the woods, everything is just carpeted with Sparrows who simply move out of the way so that he can pass through. It's just, King is just great at taking the everyday and, and creating a threat around it, right? So just as Alfred Hitchcock had done with the birds before, King is able to do the same here. And then on page 426, um, the two men meet each other. Well, I mean, I guess not meet. I mean, how do you meet someone that you've always known? You know, they face each other as physical beings for the first time. And it's anticlimactic. And I say this uh, not as a criticism. It's not a knock. I think that's what King intended because it's it really strengthens the familiarity with the two characters. Um, and it's just really interesting because Stark has been built up to be this monster, right? Um, and then when he meets Thad, he immediately loses all of his bluster. The histrionics are gone. You know, like being around your family members, you can let go of the pretenses and, and, and the act that you might put up for others. In the presence of Thad, Stark can just be himself. The tension is rising steadily. 
with the birds coming closer and closer with the uncertainty of Thad's plan. When Thad tells Alan and Liz to get rid of the knife, they surrender what control they had of the situation and give themselves over to what is completely a supernatural event. Thad and Stark go up to Wright and were left alone with Alan and Liz and are given a taste of the ending through their perspective before doubling back and giving it to us in full. Chapter 26, The Sparrows Are Flying. We see the writing process at work along with the transference of power between the two. What's interesting here is that Stark is emotionally naked at this point. The arrogant, larger-than-life figure is gone, and Thad almost feels sympathy for him. As Stark begins to write, he doesn't realize that he's writing about sparrows, and with so many variables in play, we have no idea how this is going to end. For a novel whose climax entails writing and birds, it's unbelievably tense. As Stark writes, Thad conjures a spell into his own notebook, readying the sparrows for his call as he makes amends with the fact that he has to completely surrender a part of himself. The ending is brutal. The sparrows enact a great um, feeling of being overwhelmed. Stark is literally consumed by the birds and flown away from this world, and Thad is reminded that there's a price to pay for controlling the agents of the dead. Epilogue. Uh, as the Thad Beaumont excerpt suggests here, there's really no happy ending to be had. The bad guy is vanquished, but at a great cost. Thad does not understand this, um, but Pangborn thinks to himself on page 464, You don't understand what you are, and I doubt you ever will. Your wife might, although I wonder if things will ever be right between the two of you after this if she'll ever want to understand or dare to love you again. Your kids maybe someday, but not you, Thad. Standing next to you is like standing next to a cave some nightmarish creature might come out of. The monster is gone now, but you still don't like to be too close to wherever it came from, because there might be another. Probably not. Your mind knows that, but your emotions, they play a different tune, don't they? Oh boy. And even if the cave is empty forever, there are the dreams and the memories. There's Homer Gamash, for instance, beaten to death with his own prosthetic arm. Because of you, Thad. All because of you. Despite the fact that all of our main characters live, it's one of the most bleakest endings that King has given us. And when Thad buries his, hands, uh, his head in his hands at the end, it's ambiguous as to why. Because when he watches the manuscript drift into the night, it's a reminder of what he's lost. Because he senses that there will never be any coming back from this. That maybe he should have let Stark take his life. It's up to the reader to decide, but man, it's really a gut punch of an ending. So I want to talk here um, about addiction. This is King's last book before he goes clean. And while he's making a wonderful commentary on writing, he's also exercising the very real demons that had turned his life hellish. Stark is the manifestation of his addiction, the awful abusive part of his soul that almost drove a wedge between he and his family. In the novel, Stark goes after those around Thad, while in real life, what does addiction do but systematically murder the relationships in the addict's life? When the battle for identity commences, it's the battle between the clean self um, 
and the uh, and the addicted self, each one struggling for supremacy. Thad eventually starts keeping secrets from Liz, writing in Stark's book in private. When Stark starts to deteriorate, he looks in the mirror and begins to see changes in his face, just as when an uh, addiction starts to take hold, it begins to change you. Ultimately, though Stark is vanquished at the end, and despite the terrible things that he's done to his family, Liz recognizes that there's still a part of Thad that likes George Stark. It's what makes addiction hard. If people didn't like what they were addicted to, it would make a lot easier to quit, right? You might hate yourself for it, but sometimes you can't lie that you like it, whatever it might be for you. You know, I had a friend who struggled with quitting smoking for a while, and he eventually had to give up trying to quit because when it came right down to it, he liked smoking, you know? Um, and then conversely, there's people I know that just have decided one day, you know, I don't want to do this anymore and have just stopped. And like that, they're done. They go through a little bit of a nicotine withdrawal and a couple days later, they get through it. But if they didn't all of a sudden just stop liking it, they might still be doing it to this day. And in the end, Thad struggles with summoning the birds because he knows that they're going to take away a piece of him forever. I mean, he knows it's an unhealthy piece of him, but Stark is still a part of him. And even though this part of him has threatened his family, murdered innocents, and wants to take over his life, Thad is still reluctant to do so. Again, if logic could overrule emotion or addiction, there wouldn't be such a thing as dependency. There wouldn't be a thing like alcoholism or addiction. No one would ever overdose. I'm going to talk a little bit about Thad. Um, you know, Thad is described by his wife as having never been a laughing man and a gentleman, but strangely clumsy. Uh, that part of the boy he had been still lived in him. It's necessary to show that he's emotionally guarded, quiet and gentle. He's only one half of the other coin after all. He's presented as slow, slow moving and at times slow speaking, lost in his thoughts, introspective, thoughtful. When Pangborn first accuses him of murder, when trying to speak up, his voice warbles and cracks. In the People article, suicide is mentioned, and he shrugs it off. However, it's revealed in a later Stephen King novel, Bag of Bones, I believe, that, that Thad does indeed kill himself. You can trace Thad's vulnerability back to Jim Gardner from the Tommyknockers, who also thought about suicide, and was in the darkest place I've ever seen from a Stephen King character. If you listen to my review of the Tommyknockers, you'll know that I drew the parallels between Gard's state of being with King's real-life dependency issues. Thankfully, King successfully beat the addictions, but I think that the dark half still reveals vestal traces of the dark places he had gone to. If Needful Things is the first novel he wrote while clean and sober, then it means that the dark half is the last one that he wrote under the influence. Now let's talk about George Stark. Stark holds two distinctions. The first, that he's one of the greatest Stephen King villains created, period. The second is that he is the greatest villain that nobody talks about. All of the love goes to Flag and Pennywise, and because of Jack Nicholson, the love goes to the character of Jack Torrance. But make no mistake, George Stark is right up there with the rest of them. First, he's the most fully realized character in the entire novel, and his presence feels like an extension of the character himself in the sense that just as he clawed his way into reality, he just jumps off the page. The way that King introduces him is masterful. We get the sense of Stark before we even meet him. We see his wake of destruction before he takes center stage. 
though the character's reaction um, of the deep unease and the fear um, that he instills within him, you know, he lets his legend grow. And to be perfectly honest, with his slow drawl and swagger, the character, I mean, the actor that I kept um, picturing playing George Stark was Randall Flagg himself, Mr. Matthew McConaughey. His characterization is so interesting. You know, when the scenes flip from Thad to Stark, the Stark scenes begin to read like a Richard Bachman book, taking on a life um, as the greatest Richard Bachman character he never got a chance to write. You know, the scenes are so brutal, the murder is so detailed, his actions and personality so vile. There's a hard-boiled quality to these sections, which include character actions, like when someone asks what's going on and Stark replies, murder, want some? And then we have, um, with all the characters out of the way for now, I'll be talking about Alan Pangborn later. Um, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to read the, um, the quote of the book, you know, the, the excerpt that I think boils down the, the biggest um, essence here. And it comes on page 379. You're forgetting the fingerprints and the voice prints. You're forgetting Thad and Liz's calm, flat assertion that George Stark is real that he's willing to commit murder in order to stay real. And now you're trying like hell not to examine the fact that you're starting to believe it all might be true. You talk to them about how crazy it would be to believe, not just in a vengeful ghost, but in the ghost of a man who never was. But writers invite ghosts, maybe. Along with actors and artists, they are, only, they are the only totally accepted mediums of our society. They make worlds that never were populate them with people who never existed and then invite us to join them in their fantasies and we do it don't we yeah we pay to do it so again like the like i did earlier it's it's alan painborn thinking about this particular instance but i mean it's king musing on the, the the creative process and the creative types and it's such an interesting way to to, to think about creative types, that they're the only socially accepted mediums of our reality. All right, so now we have um, the time when we come to our Stephen Kingisms, all right? And Stephen Kingisms are the tricks and traits and tropes and patterns that we see from one book to the next. So after this, I will get to the Easter eggs, which are the connections between Stephen King books and the little cameos that pop up here and there. But first, let's talk about the tricks and traits and tropes. So the first, and I mentioned this earlier, is the author protagonist. Um, and we've seen this before in The Shining, in Salem's Lot, in Misery, the Tommyknockers, the list goes on and on. Stephen King, um, it's one of the, the big jokes around Stephen King is that he just writes about writers. Number two is the addict slash alcoholic. It's been long documented and discussed at length here at the Stephen King cast that King was suffering from dependency issues that came to a head around the time of the publication of the Tommyknockers. And if you haven't read the Tommyknockers, it gets a bad rap. To me, it's a fun book that goes off the rail at times, but I kind of like the fact that it goes off the rails. Um, I mean, the end has laser beams shooting out of a parasol, death ray guns, and flying tractors. You know, I mean, um, you, you just you have to read it. To experience that kind of lunacy. Now, anyway, it also has two very depressed writer characters, 
one of whom is overtaken by an external entity and the other losing a battle with dependency. Um, when read with the understanding that the author was going through dependency issues, it makes for at times an uncomfortable read, but ultimately positive uh, knowing that he pulled himself together and has been cleaned for decades. Um, but here we, we, like I said earlier, we have the vestigial remains of King going through the, the, the dependency issues. Three, we have the physical transformation. Here, uh, George and Thad, in various stages, begin undergoing physical transformations. And this has been seen before in Thinner, in the Tommyknockers, Christine, and with Richard in The Talisman. Then we have the abusive husband um, slash father figure. Um, Thad's father is abusive of his wife, a trait seen before in King's works, most famously um, in that of Jack Torrance, but also um, Tom Rogan, Bev Marsh's husband. Number five is the very popular roaring and laughter at the unfunny joke seen here when Thad um, you know, thinks of he and Liz as a couple of drunk raccoons. Uh, number six is the teacher. Not only is Thad a writer, but he's also a teacher. Number seven is our catchphrase, the sparrows are flying again. This can be uh, added to the list of they're all going to laugh at you, red rum, come here and take your medicine, they all float, beep beep Richie, and the list goes on and on. The possession of the writer is number eight. Liz recounts of how when writing as Stark, he'd become cool, distant, troubled. Makes me think of Stephen King as presented in The Dark Tower, a conduit for the energy of Gone, and Lisi and Lisi's story describing portions of her marriage to a writer who at time could grow very distant at well. Number nine is Teeth Falling Out, which was just seen in the Tommyknockers, and 10 is Life After Death. Um, Thad relates a story about William Burroughs, who was asked if he believed in life after death, to which he replied, I believe we are living it, which sounds very similar to a conversation Roland the Gunslinger has with Brown in the first book of The Dark Tower, The Gunslinger. Which now brings us to Easter eggs. With the Easter eggs, um, which is still very new to the Stephen King cast, I will examine the little cameos and shout-outs from Stephen King to make the reading experience that much richer. The reading experience will be represented in Easter eggs, and the writing experience will be represented with the Kingisms. So um, this was brought up by a listener. I think it's a great idea. So again, thank you for, for bringing that up. First Easter egg, got to get it out of the way, Castle Rock. Clearly, this has to be the first Easter egg that I'm going to start with. Castle Rock is probably King's most famous fictional town, with Derry a very close second. Castle Rock is the setting of Cujo, The Body, The Dead Zone, various short stories including Mrs. Todd's Shortcut, Grandma. We'll see Castle Rock up next in The Sundog, and then we'll have our quote-unquote final Castle Rock story with the cataclysmic Needful Things. Um, though billed as the last Castle Rock story, King has revisited it in My Pretty Pony, Bag of Bones, um, and most recently in Revival. Along with Castle Rock, we also have its sheriff, Mr. Alan Pangborn, who will go on to star in Needful Things. When I think of the stoic Stephen King protagonist, I think of Alan Pangborn, who I think is the perfect everyman hero of Stephen King's works. He's the backbone of this book um, and this town. You know, he's the moral center, and here he functions um, as his predecessor, George Bachman, had done in The Dead Zone. Um, did I say Bachman? 
I think I just said Bachman. George Bannerman, I meant, um, had done in the Dead Zone. A supporting character to the main character um, who had been Johnny Smith in the Dead Zone uh, and Thad Beaumont here. Alan's wife is referenced, still alive at the time of this novel, whose death will be a major plot point for Needful Things. While in the cemetery, whereupon we discover the unearthed grave of George Stark, King references first selectman Danforth Buster Keaton, the human villain of Needful Things, the Renfield to Leland Gaunt's Dracula. As far as I know, because it's been a while since we've seen Castle Rock, uh, and a few stories here and there in Skeleton Crew, um, and not as in-depth here as it had been um, since 1981's Cujo, I believe um, this is Buster's first, not appearance, but um, his first reference. And uh, because so much of this novel serves, intentionally or not, as a gateway into the events of Needful Things, not only do we meet Alan Pangborn, but also the lovable deputy Norris Ridgwick. Number five, Ray Van Allen is the medical examiner who serves as a family doctor seen again um, in Needful Things. Andy Clutterbuck, likewise, is a character in both. And Sheila Brigham, dispatch officer, Sonny Jacket, the mechanic, and others. Number six, we have Juniper Hill, the asylum which is referenced here, whose one-time inmate was Henry Bowers, the bully from It. As I've mentioned before, uh, number seven, here we have Annie Pangborn, um, and her death is heavily foreshadowed here, with repeated references to her migraines, and during one scene, um, he sees her, and King writes, she looked somehow ghostly to him. He felt as if he had looked into the future and seen something there which was unpleasant. And then number eight, um, we have Polly Chalmers, owner of the hilariously titled You So-and-So, um, is referenced here, who is uh, the co-star. Of needful things okay guys uh that is all that i have for now um when it comes to the dark half i think it was uh, a very very fun novel like i said it's a um high concept story in which stephen king was able to continue to exercise some of his very real world demons while being able to explore um you know, a phenomenon uh, of that, of the uh, the pseudonym and the very real world experience of, of being publicly outed um, as, as, a, all, as a different person altogether. So it, it just made for a, a fun, wild ride, a really good insight into the mind of our author at this particular stage in his life. And like I said, set the stage for um, what is one of Stephen King's best books, in my opinion, Needful Things, which is, it's the ultimate short story, I'm sorry, ultimate small town novel. It is furthest thing from a short story. So uh, I loved it. And I hope you guys, um, if you haven't read the, the, the Dark Half in a while, go back and reread it because I, I definitely think, like I said before, um, it's worth the reread. And George Stark is the most underappreciated Stephen King villain. Um, I, I, I personally believe. So, everyone, uh, if you haven't done so already, uh, feel free to go over to iTunes, uh, write a review, or follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Um, or always, you, you can share your thoughts um, by writing to StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com. And make sure that you stick around next week for my review of George Romero's adaptation starring Timothy Hutton 
um, as both Thad Beaumont and George Stark. In the meantime, everybody, have a great week, and I'll see you here next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen King cast.